Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Love is a Battlefield, as recorded by the song's co-writer and today's guest on Songcraft, Holly Knight. Holly's songs have earned three Grammy Awards and garnered more than a dozen ASCAP Performance Awards. She is the writer or co-writer of a seemingly endless list of hits, including Love is a Battlefield and Invincible for Pat Benatar, Better Be Good to Me and The Best for Tina Turner, The Warrior for Scandal, Obsession for Anna Motion, Ragdoll with Aerosmith, Just Between You and Me with Lou Graham, and many more. Additionally, her songs have been recorded by artists as diverse as Bon Jovi, Shaka Khan, Hall & Oates, Kiss, Bonnie Tyler, Hart, Ozzy Osbourne, John Waite, Aaron Neville, Dusty Springfield, and the list goes on and on. In 2013, her remarkable songwriting accomplishments earned her a well-deserved induction into the prestigious Songwriters Hall of Fame. Holly, thanks for spending some time with us today, and welcome to Songcraft. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, one of the first things that we got to see when we came into your beautiful home is this incredible Steinway piano that you've got in there. And uh, I understand that was a piano uh, that your parents bought for you when you were a child. And you grew up in New York City studying classical music as a kid. How did you first start getting into rock and pop music? Uh, I think I got either bought it or someone gave me a Supremes record. Hmm. And... I just was obsessed with everything about it, even the cover, the way they were dressed, the liner notes on the back. Oddly enough, I never paid attention to the writers. I never looked to see, oh, who's writing? Of course, I was, you know, I was eight years old or something, you know. But there was sort of this dual identity thing going on because I was studying classical music and my mother was kind of had this fantasy of grooming me to be a concert pianist. Mm. And um, so I was sort of going down that path. So when I discovered records on my own, and, you know, it it led from the Supremes to the Doors to Grand Funk and the Beatles and, you know, all that stuff, um, it was something that I discovered on my own. It was like a guilty pleasure, you know. And the louder, the better, you know. I just (laughs) turn it up and crank it up and... Somehow, like, both those things kind of got embedded in my um, musical soul, I guess. I know you left home uh, at a pretty young age to to pursue music as a career. Talk about some of those very early professional music pursuits. Yeah, I was only four when I left home, so (laughs) (laughs) I was right at the end of my 15th birthday, and... um, I was in a band with my boyfriend, and we had this really sort of radical name. We were called Iconoclast, nice. which I kind of like now because, I mean, it sort of set the bar for, like, be be the leader, right. you know, don't be the follower, sort of come up with your own stamp and think outside the box. So yeah. it was sort of prog rock, you know. Right. They, they weren't so much song-based. They were more like... You know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer meets Yes and all that yeah. stuff. Um, and you were playing keyboards. And I was playing keyboards. Yeah. And we hired a singer. But, you know, we did a couple of gigs. I was living in Boston at the time. So 
there was this whole vibe of, you know, Aerosmith. And at that time, I was in a bad company in Queen. Yeah. Queen was like the biggest influence for me mm. and uh, to this day still is because they had so many classical elements and they they wrote pop hits like sure. you know that were iconic and you know yeah there's that word again yeah. iconic iconoclast <laughs> so um i started doing that and then when i was about 18 i moved back to new york because i lived i had lived in boston i'd lived in seattle i mean i was just like a gypsy i lived in all these different towns for a few years when i went back to new york is when I started thinking more seriously about I really would like to be in a band. Mm. I also had a pivotal moment when I was um, sort of traveling all over the country. I went to see the Beach Boys, and I went up to the front of the stage, like literally, like the foot of the stage. My hands were like clawing the stage. (laughs) And I looked up, I think it was Mike Love, and I pointed to him, and I, I was like waving, and I said, can I come up and play? Wow. Bold. I must have been really high or something <laughs> to, to have the balls to do that. But surprisingly, he pulled me up on the stage. He literally That's put his awesome. arm out, pulled me on the stage, walked me over to a keyboard, and they were playing, of all songs, Good Vibrations. Wow. <laughs> so I start playing. I'm like, this is amazing. And he's whispering the chord changes in my ear, and I just remember looking and going, I know. Wow. <laughs> I know the chords. <laughs> right. I, I remember looking out into the audience and... And there was this moment, like you hear about or you see in some movie, where everything, just time stood still, and like the rush and the roar and everything got really silent. And I looked out and I thought, wow, man, this is cool. This is what I want to do. So that kind of stayed in my mind. So by the time I went to New York, I was starting to really think seriously about that. I understand that you played all the keyboards on the Kiss unmasked album in 1980 how did you wind up getting that gig i already knew them and i was at the record plant because i was dating an engineer named gray russell who Hmm. was working on a record with mike chapman a blondie record gene simmons walked out into the lounge and i was just sitting there you know he said you play keyboards right and i i said yeah he says do you want to come in and play we need keyboards on a track and i went okay Inside, I'm going, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. I'm going to play on a Kiss record. So I went in, and I played. And then they liked it so much, they said, oh, you know, we need keyboards on these other songs, so do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, okay. Wow. <laughs> Why not? Um, and they said, they told me up front, they said, well, you know, we're not going to be able to give you credit, but we'll pay you. Yeah. Hey. And so I saved, I, I, to this day, I have that check. I Xeroxed it. I have really? that check. That's the proof. And then they gave me a, a gold record. Nice. Uh, which is in my studios. So. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. That was really fun, though. That was like, I thought, you know, something's going on. Like, this, yeah. this feels more like the big leagues. Right. Now. Starting to happen. It's not really a fantasy or right. it doesn't feel like it. At the same time this was going on, you were playing with your own band, Spider. Uh, And between 1980 and 1981, Spider released two albums and five singles, including New Romance, which hit the top 40. Do 
all the songs on those two Spider albums were written by the members of the band in various configurations. Um, when you are not the only writer in a group, how do you navigate the politics of choosing which songs will make the cut and which ones won't? Very carefully. This <laughs> <laughs> is like shark-infested waters. Um, actually, it wasn't left up to us, and in a way, it was really done in a in a in a fair way because we wouldn't put our names when we submitted the tunes to the label. We wouldn't say who wrote what. Interesting. So they just picked the songs they like with no bias. And what pissed the band off was they always picked my songs as the singles (laughs) and my songs. And that kind of was an indication to me that I am really actually pretty good at writing, Hmm. you know, because I never really took myself seriously as a songwriter um, until I joined that band. And they were writing and some of their stuff was crap. I mean, you know, and I thought... I can't do any worse. I might as well just give it my best shot. Right. And, you know, gave me the confidence to do it. So yeah. that's really when I started becoming a songwriter. Yeah. What well, your label Dreamland Records was co-owned by Nikki Chin and Mike Chapman, who's best known for producing Blondie and the Knack. And you and Mike have written quite a few hits together. How did the two of you first wind up collaborating as co-writers? Um, that's how we, we signed with them, but then we didn't get to use him as a producer because he was too busy. So we used Peter Coleman, who had been working with Pat Benatar and it was only on the second record. I got smart and I thought, I'm going to go and see if he'll write a song with me. And if he'll write a song with me, then maybe he'll produce it. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. That was Um, smart. And that was better be good to me. Oh, wow. Not a bad first song to write with Exactly. I know. I know. (laughs) Wow. We just like it was magic from the the very first song we wrote together. It was just um, yeah. something that I've very, very rarely found over the rest of my career that kind of chemistry with mm. someone. Right. Now you can't manufacture it, can you? No, you can't. And you know, when things are forced, it shows in the music. Well, so tell tell us about the genesis of that song. Better be good to me. What uh, what's the story behind that one? I was going out with this. Um, German chef who left a note underneath my door with some flowers once and it and he said something about like you know be good to me or something Hmm. and I thought that's a great idea for a title for a song so when I first worked the mic we went in his office we had this little rolling drum machine which is a roll he used that on a lot of records like uh, Heart of Glass you know how it starts out That's the same drum machine we used. Oh, cool. (laughs) We had a keyboard and he had a guitar. And uh, we just, like all the songs that Mike and I wrote, we we would just start jamming. Yeah. It was just really fun. Like, just, it was a very different experience writing with him and writing with someone that you knew had written number one. So, like, you know, when I would collaborate with the members of Spider, there was much more insecurity and egos involved. And like, if you, you know, but with him, it, it like the bar was set so high with his success and everything that I just was like this little doe-eyed sort of like, I would just <laughs> follow and do whatever he said, you right, know? Right, right, yeah. And it sort of set that relationship up of, you know, the mentor and the protege. Yeah. Right. Well, Better Be Good to Me became a huge hit for Tina Turner in 1984, yeah. both on the pop and R&B charts.
How did she get her hands on that song? Well, we recorded it on the second Spider record, Between the Lines, and Mike produced it. So it was very, very different than the other stuff we'd done. And had we stayed together and continued with Mike Chapman, I think that that Spider would have been enormous. Um, But through various reasons, we didn't go on after that. I left the band. And um, about six months after we put it out as a single, someone pitched it to her in a meeting, and apparently, as urban legend, I guess we'll have it, she got up and started running around the boardroom saying, this is it. This is what I want to say. This is what I'm feeling. I want this song. She had literally just, you know, run across the freeway. Right. Get away away from from Ike. Ike. So this was very much an empowering song for her. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, Tina Turner for a moment, because you've obviously had a lot of uh, success with her. Uh, In 1985, you had another Tina hit uh, when she recorded One of the Living for the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome soundtrack. Talk about how that came together. They were doing the movie, and they sent me a script. And I love to get a script... And it gives me a roadmap to write something. You know, right. it's always wonderful when you have some direction that way. So I just like, I really wanted to be in that movie. So yeah. I wrote the song, gave it to Roger, her manager, who sent it to her. She was on tour and she flipped. She loved it and said, I want to cut it. I was like, great, that's fantastic. And she couldn't stop touring. So, and they wanted the song cut by a certain date. So, we had to cut the track, and then when she, the plan was she was going to come back to town and just put the vocals in. Right. The next question is, what key are we going to do in? Because we do it in the wrong key. Right. She comes in, we have no track. Wow. So he, so Roger said, well, that's okay. Just record like three or four versions, and I'll play her all of them. You can label what the keys are, and she can pick one. And I said, uh, uh, you know, Roger, that's not going to work because, like, what if you're running on a different currency over there? Or what if, you know, she's listening to it on, like, a Walkman. That dates me. Right? <laughs> on a Walkman, and the batteries are running, like, too slow. Then the key's going to be wrong. Right. And I really hate to not get this right. And then he said the magic words that I was hoping he was going to say. He said, well then you're going to have to come with me. I'm going there tomorrow. Ah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. You know, and I hadn't met her yet, so this was my opportunity to meet her and be yeah. in a room with her. Um, you know, She'd already had a hit with Better Be Good to me, but I hadn't met her. You, know, you don't often meet the artist that's right. cutting your tune. Right. So anyway, so I got on the plane with him, and she came to the airport with their road manager, and I got in this limo with her, and that was, it was just, from that point on, it was amazing. It took me all of like... You know, I think five minutes to go over the key with her. And then she said, you want to come with me for a few days? I'm touring. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, sure. <laughs> so I had I got to go to several countries with her, and I just had a blast. We went to Paris. We went to Switzerland. And, and I was thinking, this is the life of a songwriter? How cool is this? Wow. Like, <laughs> right. you know. So in 1989, Tina released the gold-selling Foreign Affair album, which included the massive international hit, The Best, um, another one that you and Mike Chapman wrote together.
Um, but I understand that kind of in the similar vein of Better Be Good to Me, that that song was not actually written initially with Tina in mind. Um, share with us a little bit about the journey of how that song found its home ultimately. We wrote that song because I, I went to him and I said, let's write a song for Paul Young because I, I just, um, I loved, you know, his version of the, the Hall and Oates song, Every Time You Go Away. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think I had a crush on him too. Or something. And that was like my way to meet him. <laughs> right. Um, but so we wrote it and we sent it to him and his manager passed on it or he hmm. passed on it. I don't know. Yeah. They passed on it collectively. And so then we were like, okay, we'll just get someone else to cut it. And then before we knew it, uh, Desmond Child was doing Bonnie Tyler and he was, he was producing her right? and he cut that song with her. Hmm. Okay. And she, uh, Tina Turner got sent the song maybe like a month or two after Bonnie t- t- uh, had released her record. Yeah. And she called me up and she said, I want to do that song. She said, but I want a bridge. There's no bridge in it, and I wanted to have a key change at the end so I can really, like, you know, <laughs> sing the shit out of it. Yeah. So Mike and I got together and actually rewrote the song. It's the only time I've actually rewritten the song after it's been released. Yeah. yeah. When Tina Turner says, I'd like a bridge, you, you write a bridge. Yeah, well, <laughs> Tina, I mean, like all those divas, like especially Tina, because she's just so mammoth and intense and... She's Tina Turner, you know. I always felt like I, like one of those tailors with like the little measuring tape around my neck and the pins (laughs) in my mouth. (laughs) Right. And I'm just altering the the dress, you know. Well, and obviously something about that really worked because in addition to the best uh, on the Foreign Affair album, there were, I think, three other songs uh, that you co-wrote with Albert Hammond, who, of course, is best known for... um, writing and singing It Never Rains in Southern California and writing hits for other artists with songs like To All the Girls I've Loved Before and Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now and tons of others. But uh, you are someone who has worked with a, a wide range of, of co-writers. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about the the Mike Chapman stuff and, and here's Albert Hammond and there's others we'll discuss. But um, when it comes to working with someone else, getting together with someone to create a song out of nothing. What, in your opinion, makes for a good collaboration? My ideal collaboration is working with someone that's, how do I say this, brings to the table things that I don't bring but is the same level hmm. as me. And like It's like two power tools coming together. Right. And I've always sort of used the analogy, you know, you could be, for instance, the world's greatest tennis player. And if you're throwing the balls, you're hitting the balls to someone that doesn't hit them back to you, you play the worst game of your life. Yeah. And I've written with many songwriters that aren't really songwriters, and it's like songwriting 101, and it's a nightmare. I, I, I'm too polite to tell them when I don't like their idea, so it gets used. <laughs> right. Or I'm sitting there doing all the work, and I keep looking at them, and I'm going, is this something you would say? Do you like this? Can Give me some feedback. And I'm like, right. yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, right. yeah, right. And then I've worked with people that are like that, and that unknown, you know, that quality, that X factor, the chemistry is still not there. I mean, it's like right. falling in love. How do you really sort of put your finger on what it is that gets you right. another person? It's, yeah. 
but I will say that Albert Hammond was one of those people that I felt, again, I felt like a real connection with. And we spent, I think, about two months just writing all the time. And every single song we wrote ended up getting covered. Wow. And then wow. something happened and we went our separate ways. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was a shame because we really had that sort of magical thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, he's a very good writer. Going back prior to the Tina Turner success, your first big hit as a songwriter came when Pat Benatar had a top five hit with Love is a Battlefield. Tell us a bit about writing that song. I was at this point, I was touring with Spider. We were doing our second record. Our second record had come out and we were touring. And things were really getting heated in the band. I mean, from the fact that, yes, we were all involved, sort of romantically, not a good idea. (laughs) And, you know, two girls in a band, you can't have two queen bees. I mean, it's like I I ended up having a fist fight with the singer. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. You know, we talk now with Facebook, sure. you know, this was back then. And um, so I went to Mike Chapman, or I called him up. We were on tour, and I said, I'm going to finish the tour out. We were touring with Alice Cooper, which was pretty cool. Uh-huh. Um, and I said, I want to leave the band, and I know you're going to be really pissed because you've put all this money into, you know, developing the band and believed in me, but I just thought I should tell you. And, and he goes, actually, he says, you know what? The record label's falling apart because I'm splitting up with Nikki Chen. And... I think it's a very good move. And I, he said, I believe in you. I want you to... It, I said I was thinking of moving out to California. And he said, well, move out here and we'll write. And, and, and if I'm producing something and I'm not the writer, I, you know, I'll introduce you to writers. I'll produce a track, um, even if I'm not the writer. And I'll really sort of you know, shepherd you through this thing because I think you're going to be a really successful writer. And mm. so that's what I did. I packed oh. up all my stuff and I moved to California. Wow. And so... The first day I went over to his house and showed him like these chords and you know I was just showing them to him and the phone rang and it was Pat Benatar and she said, Mike, I'm doing a live record and I need a hit song. Will you write me a hit song? Because hmm. she had worked with him on some of the tracks on her her very first record. Right. And he said, yeah. He said, I've, I've got Holly Knight here and she's a writer that I'd sign and we were going to write today so we'll write for you. Nice. <laughs> I know. This just sounds like that. This would never happen anymore. It just sounds like a fairy yeah. tale. Um, so he hung up the phone, and I started playing the chords. Loves Battlefield. He goes, "That's really. I like that. Let's use that. Let's write with that." He says, "But now, because it's so poppy and stuff, let's mix it up. Let's use a really. Let's come up with like a really strange, fucked up title." Yeah. He goes, "Let's. It's something just really." really strange you know like love is a battlefield and he just like spit it out yeah and i remember looking at him going okay that's it (laughs) and then so we wrote the whole song in one day but for one line that we just couldn't figure out what to do with it and it was in the chorus so it had to be really good and we spent two weeks working on that one line which which line was that no promises no demands i was gonna ask you about that line because that that's an incredible line. And to me, that's sort of like, 
it, it almost like captures like the spirit of an era and, and kind of the way relationships, you know, it's like, uh, True. Yeah, almost like kind of even like a sexual revolution, like the way the way people come together. No right. promises, no demands. Let's just do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you could even see it now. I mean, I know this sounds awful, but you I think like this. You could, you could see it in a commercial. Yeah. In a car commercial oh. for Jaguar. No promises, no demands. Yeah. <laughs> Live right. free. Yeah, right. right, yeah. But the funny thing was, we would sit out by his pool, and he had like this housekeeper that would sort of serve us lunch, <laughs> and we were like rolling joints, and, <laughs> and and then he taught me how to fly paper airplanes. Um, <laughs> sure. And so I would write down like a title or something, and I would shoot the paper airplane across the pool to him. Right. He would read it, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> and then he writes something fly back. I mean, just this really silly thing. And you're like, this is great. What major artist is going to call tomorrow when it gets <laughs> <laughs> right. So the very first song uh, you and Mike ever wrote together is Better Be Good to Me. Then you move out to L.A. to pursue songwriting seriously. And the first time you get together with him here in L.A., you come up with Love is a Battlefield. That's exactly. that's pretty amazing. And I understand that when you guys initially wrote the song and, and demoed it, it had kind of a different vibe than the, the record wound up with right yeah it had a very different vibe it was about half the tempo it wasn't a shuffle it was more like a four four anthem um and in those days and we made really shitty demos and there was a charm to them you know and i have the demo still somewhere it's like and he's singing on it and he's not a great singer but he has a way of like just conveying the vibe of something and I've often found, too, like with female singers, it's always better to give them a demo with a male singer because they like to think, you know, most girls that sing rock are tomboys. Hmm. And they're much more inspired to hear a guy and then try and emulate that than another woman. Wow. Oh, you know? That's interesting. Um, so we gave, yeah, we did this demo. And when they sent us back, Jeff Aldridge, who was the A&R guy at uh, Chrysalis for many acts, um, like Billy Idol and Benatarn, and he, and Nick Gilder, and... He sent it to us. He said, this song's a fucking hit. But when we heard it, it was like, what? What is this shit? What's what's all this crap on the record? It just was laden with synthesizers and and drum beats and all that. And and, and the funny thing is that that Neil and Pat know. I mean, they actually wrote about it in their book. They know that we hated the demo. (laughs) Um, But... And and I've worked with them after that. I mean, we've become good friends and joked right. about it. But um, we just didn't know what the, what was going on. But then it started getting played on the radio all the time, and it was like you know we fell in love with it. And it's like now it's like I I love the recording. Right, right. right. Though he didn't write it with you, Mike Chapman wound up producing your song "The Warrior," which became a top ten hit for Patty Smythe's band Scandal in 1984. song has lived on at sports events on tv shows and even in the guitar hero and grand theft auto video game franchises um in terms of potential revenue streams for a song what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the business over the last 30 years have you got all day (laughs) (laughs) let's begin with the internet you know um the internet has been a double-edged sword it's been amazing 
and it's been a nightmare too. Mm. You know, you have YouTube for starters, and you have you know whether it's Katy Perry or the the Korean artist Gangnam was that his name? Oh yeah, yeah. Psy. Yeah. yeah, broke the record for having a million hits. Yeah, Bravo, good for you. Right. Yeah. What does that mean to the songwriter? Right. And what does that mean to the musicians that played on it and the producer? How much money did we make? Nothing. Right. It's a billion dollars that we didn't make. Yeah. And then it goes on to uh, Spotify. You know, mm-hmm. um, I will say that I'm I'm starting to get pretty involved with the legislation and the laws because it's um, it's like the Wild West. You yeah. know, there were yeah. no rules for the internet when it started, and I think that the record companies and, and people like you know Spotify just took advantage of that. Yeah. You know? it's very hard for a songwriter to make a living now, and I'm I'm not so concerned with myself because I've been really blessed and lucky, and I'm still living off of things you know from the 80s. Yeah, but for the new people coming up that want to write, it's just like there's really it's it's almost impossible to make a living doing it. I think that's kind of what I'm I'm driving at is is just this idea that some of these hit songs that you wrote you wrote in an era where you write a hit song an artist records it and and you can make a lot of money from just from that and yeah and you made now, it on the back you made you made it on the back end didn't even have to be a single necessarily you could be on it a was multi- fantastic because yeah. you had a record now if you had the single right the, the reason we wanted the single was because it would propel the rest of the record but the single would then get on the charts like the billboard charts yeah because it would be played at radio yeah and um you could make a lot of money with like performance rights right because of that you know um and there was even a time when if you had a single before we were into cds if you were on the flip side you got a free ride right right exactly the the single would carry the other side and so both would make the same amount of money right in in a lot of ways at least on that part and then if you were getting the performance rights like they had certain levels um they still have it. You know, you get up to top 10, you make a certain amount. You get up to number one, you make a lot more money, depending right. on how long you stayed. And that's why having the bullet was important. Yeah. But now people don't buy records anymore. They just go on and they buy their favorite song off of a record or right. whatever. Right. And I think that's horrible. I mean, plus you don't get to find out who wrote what. You don't get yeah. to yeah. find out who played on it. You don't get to read those liner notes that I used to love reading. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, and they would do the special thanks. And then you'd see like your favorite artists, like thanks. You need to be sort of fantasizing. Well, who's this person? Is that his girlfriend? Right. Or right. Special thanks to his mother, or right. special thanks to a famous artist. It's like right. that's all the charm is like yeah. just gone. It's yeah. just all it's and and it's basically because of streaming, it's invisible. Speaking of liner notes, uh, telling us who worked with who, Patty Smythe of Scandal sang backup vocals on John Waite's recording of Change which was a song that originally appeared on Spider's second album before John cut it and uh, released it as the first single from his debut album in 1982. Oh, we always wish for money. We always wish for fame. We think we have the answers. Some things are ever gonna change. It doesn't released as a single following the success of his big hit Missing You and it became a moderate charter for him in early 1985. I've heard you say that that's one of your personal favorites from your song catalog. What makes that one particularly special for you? Um, 
I think part of it is that I wrote it alone. When, whenever I would write something on my own, I, I felt that it gave me a certain amount of legitimacy. Like, okay, I, I'm not falling on the on the shoulders of the great Mike Chapman or yeah. whoever. This is just me. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people come up and say that their favorite songs are the ones that I've written alone, like One of the Living or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's part of it. But more than that, I just, I love the bridge on that, the we always wish for money. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like, I think I was a little bit influenced by the Rebel Rebel Bowie oh, yeah. song, you know? Yeah. yeah. And there was something cool about that. And, and I also like the sentiment of what it says. And here I am, you know, decades later. And it's so true. Yeah. Mm. You know, so much stuff happens to you. But, you know, you have to sort of, like, stay grounded with who you are. Another song that, that uh, we've heard you say is one of your favorites uh, is Invincible, which was another top 10 for Pat Benatar in the summer of 1985. Tell us what's special about that one for you. It's funny because, uh, you know, after I'd had a whole bunch of hits, an interviewer said to me, why are all your songs about fighting? And I was like, no, they're not. I read lots of stuff. He said, no, but your really strong ones are about fighting. And I thought, hmm, okay, the warrior, invincible, loves of battle. I was like, well, maybe he's right. And But the thing was, they weren't about fighting with someone. Mm-hmm. It was more about fighting for something. Yeah. It was like this Joan of Arc thing I had going. Yeah. I think musically, that song kind of encompasses a style that I've kind of developed over the years. But it's got like the minor chords that kind of, when it opens up to the chorus, it turns into this minor major kind of thing. Hmm. But there's sort of, um, again, that, oh, what are we fighting for? You know, it's got that angst of we can't afford to be innocent. Stand up and face the enemy. It's a do or die situation. We'll be invincible, you know? Well, 1985 was, uh, I mean, you were just crazy busy with having all this activity on the charts that year. Uh, Another big hit from that same year was Animotion's recording of your song, Obsession. song was originally recorded as a duet by you and your co-writer Michael DeBar and uh, was featured in the film trailer for nine and a half weeks um, and then obviously became better known by this uh, this other version now when you write something and you perform it um, for yourself or, or with your own group but then another artist kind of grabs hold of that song and they interpret your work um, do you worry kind of about how they will treat that or what will happen to it in someone else's hands? Or are you able to just kind of go with the flow or is it a mixed bag? Well, first of all, let me uh, add one thing to what you said. You really know your stuff. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, it was also in a movie called A Night in Heaven, right. Michael DeBar's version with me. So we actually, besides that trailer, we got it in a, in a, in a movie about um, 
a, a male stripper. It was like the hmm. magic mic. Of Pre-magic this time. mic, yeah. <laughs> yeah right? But to answer your question, it, every time that I submit a song, I've taken a lot of care to put down a good demo. Sometimes they've changed it for the better. And I'll give you an example. I think the version that John Waite did of Change is way better than the version that Spider did. Mm, He really made it his own and turned it into a very cool song. So that was fantastic. Um, But then there have been times I've given songs that I felt were hit songs, and I gave them to an artist, and... They would change it just to change it, but they wouldn't change it for the better. Yeah. And they would take a potential hit song and turn it into an album track and just kill it. Yeah. 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 Well, in late 1985, the band Heart scored a top five hit with Never, which you co-wrote with Gene Black and Ann Wilson. We can't go a song like Never compared with something like Obsession, and they represent a fairly different approach to songwriting. Do you think of yourself as someone who has different sides to a musical personality that you tap into depending on what's called for? That's a really good question. Um, Absolutely. I thrive on diversity. And, you know, I mean, at the core of it is a good song is a good song, whatever your style is going to be when you produce it or whatever. Yeah. And I have. I mean, I play classical piano like I don't do professionally. I do it for myself. But I'm, you know, I mean, I could do it professionally if I wanted to. Um, But and then again, when it comes to even pop music, you know, every artist, you have to sort of be true to whatever their style is. And, you know. I, I When I worked with a group, well, I didn't actually work with them in the end. I ended up writing for the Divinals. I mean, this was a band that would never, never in the wildest dreams would they record an outside tune. And I remember saying to them, don't worry, it'll sound like you, it'll fit in with everything else, mm. you know. And that's part of the, um, the challenge is to write something that you think is right for this artist, but take it one step further. If you try and do what's already been done, that's a that's a bad idea. So mm. you have to try and think about what should they do next. Yeah. Still sounds like them, but it's something they wouldn't have come up with on their own. Right. It's something they can feel proud about. That even though it's a pop song, it's a cool pop song. Yeah, right. right. You know, I don't want to write another Love is a Battlefield. I wanted to write Invincible. That was the next step. It was yeah. more of a sophisticated tune. And, you know. Well, a couple of years after you'd had the hit with Heart, uh, you and Nancy Wilson collaborated on There's the Girl, which was another hit for them that fell just shy of the top 10. Talk a little bit about the Wilson sisters and what they brought to the table that made your collaborations with them work so well. How can you not be inspired by, like, Ann Wilson's voice? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, we just had a lot of fun. Um, we connected. We had a good chemistry. We were like the bad girls, you know? <laughs> they are so much badder than anybody knows. I mean, probably not so much now. I mean, we've all had kids and we're older. But back in that day, we were we were party animals. And that even made us love each other more. You right, Because right. I thought they were so straight and everything. And they, right. they were just... And funny. Right. Oh, my God. Well, you guys had so much success together. And, and after your initial success with Never... 
then then came 1986 when Rod Stewart took your song Love Touch to the top 10. You wrote that song with Mike Chapman and Gene Black, but I understand you were originally supposed to write it with Rod. What happened there? Yeah, um, that was another time I got summoned up to Arnold Stiefel's office to meet Rod, and um, I was really excited. You know, it's funny. When I went up there, I thought, God, I really, I guess I've really made it now, or I'm hmm. being called like to these like really big stars. They want to work with me. So right. I always would kind of do my homework like I never would show up at a writing session with an artist empty-handed like I would bring some ideas right um because I knew that would get them excited and it would get us going instead of us just sort of sitting there but I walked in and I pretty much had love touch together I had the title I had the chorus I had I didn't have any I mean I had a melody but I didn't have any melody for the verse I purposely didn't finish it thinking okay I'll get to finish it with him yeah so we set up a bunch of times to write together where we got together and I don't know, it's like it was it was fun, but it was kind of annoying because he was very distracting and he wasn't really like doing much to contribute to the writing session. <laughs> right. I won't go into the details, but I finally said to him, you know what, L- let me work on this song, either finish it or I'll finish it with Mike Chapman or let me work on it. And, and I promise you it'll be a hit song. And if you're smart, you'll cut it. And if you don't, I'll have the song. And he agreed. He said, okay. So I went and finished it with Mike Chapman. But then Gene, he came over and I was playing him this song. I said, it's, I don't know, it's sort of missing something. And he started playing and he was playing this really cool, funky... Mm-hmm. Now, normally, I, I have this, this theory that, like, if you're a musician, it's your job as a musician to bring ideas to the table with your guitar. Yeah. You right. Know? But he came up with this thing and I said, you know... This really makes the song so warm and so special mm. that I think you deserve credit on it. So that's right. how he got credit on it for his guitar lick. You know? Right. Well, by 1986, you were a bona fide behind the scenes hit songwriting machine. Um, but you returned to performing when you put together the group uh, Device with Gene Black, whom we've mentioned, and found success with a top 40 single, Hanging on a Heart Attack. At this point, you had already been through the whole band thing with Spider. And you would definitely hit your stride as a successful songwriter. Um, so what compelled you to get back into the artist game? I think at the heart of it, I've always been a musician. You know, I started piano when I was four. I took classical lessons for 10 years. Yeah. And I missed it. I hmm. missed that camaraderie that comes with playing. You know, you're on the stage and you may not even be looking at the other band members, but you're so totally in sync and you're smiling and then you turn over, look at them and you both... Yeah. You just grin, and then it's like, you know, and, you know, it's it's also, I mean, you know, when you play live, you know, you you sort of feed off the audience, and you see the joy that you're giving them, and they're like, just, it's almost like you can do no wrong, even if you make a mistake, and they're cheering, and blah, 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 you know. Right, right. It's just fun. It's like, you know, I'm a musician, so I just wanted to do it one more time, you know, and just... And, and I also thought then I could write material that and perform things that wouldn't necessarily get cut, but would be more artistic and, right. 
you know, things that I wanted to do. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the period in the in the late 1980s when you worked quite a bit with several legendary rock bands, uh, including Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, uh, Kiss. Um, first, you collaborated with Aerosmith, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry on Ragdoll, which became a top 20 single in 1988. I understand that that was not exactly a typical co-writing session. Tell us about that. I was basically brought in to tighten a screw. <laughs> Without that screw being tightened, they would have had an album track. And mm. I was brought in to make it a hit. And I really liked the song tremendously. It was called Ragtime. I liked the the song enough that out of respect, I didn't want to be one of those assholes that like, well, in order to make my mark and be relevant, I'm just going to rip it to shreds and make it this. Right. So out of respect, I really only changed the title and some of the lyrics at the end, you know, a few things in the chorus. Yeah. But I don't really like to write like that. I like to be there from the beginning. Sure. And I just thought, you know, with all his jewelry and his scarves, he's like a big rag doll. And so I kind of talked him into that. I mean, I've heard so many stories since then that, you know, um, they had already thought of that and shot that idea down and blah, 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 blah. I would have liked to have had the opportunity to really sit down and write a song from scratch mm. with Steven and yeah. really show him what I, I can do, you know? Sure, yeah. Around this same time in the late 80s, um, you had obviously collaborated with um, Mike Chapman and, and Albert Hammond and folks who are extremely well-known and well-respected uh, in the music business, but are not necessarily household names to the average music consumer. But now here you are going and collaborating with, with Aerosmith, who blew up you know, huge after that. You also wrote uh, Stick to Your Guns um, with uh, Bon Jovi on their, on their New Jersey album. Um, so in what way does going from writing with guys who are great writers but not as well-known to then going and writing with... Uh, you know, the Wilson sisters or, or Bon Jovi, um, people who are major public figures, does a person's star power, so to speak, change the dynamic of a writing session? I think for the most part, writing with rock stars is kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> now, some of those rock stars are great writers. Sure. But they're you know, you have to try, it's a, it's a difficult thing because you want to be on par with them, but you also don't want to piss them off. And a lot of them are very sort of, uh, they're so used to having so many ass kissers around that, you know, you're kind of walking through a landmine in a way. That wasn't the case with the Wilson sisters because we got to be such good friends that we like just put it all out there and we could say fuck you to each other and, <laughs> right. and, and have it be fine, you know? Yeah. You know, I won't, I won't say who the artist is, but there was someone I really wanted to work with. And I met her, and 
she said, oh, I'd love to write with you. And long story short, I had five appointments. She blew me off. Mm-hmm. And I never got to write with her. Yeah. And, and I just thought, you know, that's kind of like what you're dealing with. These uh, days, and I understand know? when you wrote with John Bon Jovi, you even had to kind of deal with like a crazy fan, right? Oh, yeah. He had a fan that followed him to my uh, my place. I was living in an apartment high rise at the time on Wilshire Boulevard with the doorman and everything. And right. She tried to get in the building. He wouldn't let her in there. And then so we worked. And then when it was time, we were done, time for him to leave, I called down. I said, is that girl still down? He said, yeah, she's waiting in front. So I went down into the garage, and I had a wig that I had left over from Halloween or something (laughs) like that. And um, I put it on John. Right. And he left in my car, and I left in his car. And I kind of put on the base. He was wearing a baseball cap or something. And so when we both left, I went to the right and he went to the left and the fan followed me. Right. And then I, so I took her on a wild goose chase. <laughs> and then when we came to a stoplight somewhere and she turned around like she thought, okay, I've got him now. And I looked at her and I went, winked. And I was like, See ya. Well, you recorded a self-titled solo album in the late 1980s for Columbia Records. And one of the songs from that album that was a collaboration was... Uh, Baby Me, which you wrote with Billy Steinberg, who's best known for songs like True Colors and Like a Virgin. Now, Shaka Khan wound up covering it and making it an R&B hit in 
And I had those sort of, don't you know that one cold world's word's gonna lead to another? And he loved that. And we've, we've pretty much, he kind of came in and sort of executed finishing the song, and it was great. We wrote it in one day, boom, two days later he recorded it. That I love. I yeah. love when you write with an artist. Yeah right when they're doing an album because then you don't have to wait and like have them change their mind like you know they hold it for six months or years like oh you know we're not going to cut that song or whatever you know yeah there's yeah. one moment in that song that feels like such a lou graham moment to me and it's right before the chorus you think the song is here range wise and he goes then we'll have nowhere to go and just yeah. shoots up there uh-huh was that part of the thing that you already had ready? You're like, okay, this will be a showcase moment for him, or is that something he just busted no, out? No, that's something in he busted session, out. With. That's Lou Graham. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's him getting chills now. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about on the way over here um, that you have had the good fortune of these songs that you've written being delivered like you said a moment ago you know what a good singer is you've worked with good singers they have people like lou graham you know pat benatar tina turner i mean it really Steven tyler you know, yeah, and yeah you don't have to get in the writing session and go well we got to keep the range kind of here you can let that range yeah. go with right these and, and more and more like in the last decade that's been more the case Certainly in the rock world, that that those days are long go- gone of having just like singers like that. Yeah, a Steve that, Perry. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, or Ann Wilson. I can't tell you how many times people, female singers, have come up and really tried to emulate either Ann Wilson or Pat Benatar because they love they love them. Yeah. Right. But they they just don't bring it. They just don't bring it. The they they don't have the same A game. Well, in the late 1990s, you wrote and produced "Sanctuary" by Darling Violetta which is best known as the theme song to the TV show Angel. Um, tell us how that opportunity came about and talk a bit about why sync placements in movies and TV are such an important uh, consideration for contemporary songwriters. Um, well, first of all, I was friends with Randy Jackson. Hmm. I met him when I was touring with my band Device, and he was in Journey, and he was playing bass. Right. He became an A&R guy at Sony. And... He introduced me to Darling Violetta. They were the ones that said, you know, we heard that um, there's this new show, Angel, and they're looking for a cello rock band, and Darling Violetta had cello in it. And I said, we think we should try and write something. Yeah. You know, we thought, like, maybe we'll get lucky or whatever. But Josh Wheedland fell in love with our version, and so after the show ended... They came uh, to us and said, we want to do a soundtrack, and we want a longer version of the theme. We were lucky at that time, the theme that was a minute and a half long, because now it's like 10 seconds or something. <laughs> I, had to, I had another show where I had to just slice and dice from three minutes down to 20 seconds. That was painful. Right. Yeah. It was, and, and after that, they asked for one more. I said, no, I'm done. There's no song after that. Right. Um, but so we did a longer version, and um, that's pretty much it. So in recent years, you've gotten more heavily involved in producing other artists. In what ways do your songwriting instincts shape your approach to producing records? My specialty, so I've been told, is I write hooks. And I can take something, like I've worked with artists where, you know, they'll have a whole song and then they'll have just a few seconds of this one thing and I'll say to them, why don't you take this thing and make a song out of it? Hmm. There's, there's so much in just this part right. that you're, you're, that's the part that's drawing me and that makes me want to hear more, you know? Yeah. 
And um, so in that way, when I'm producing, even if I'm not involved in the writing, like I've deliberately produced some things where I'm not writing because I don't want to be one of those producers like, you're going to do one of my songs, you know? Right. I want to be able to bring to the table my skills um, with their music if it merits, you know, if it's a great song. It could, because you need to focus on the song, and I think there's a difference between great songs and great records. Yeah. And, and now I just sort of feel like I, I have a vision when I'm writing. I see the video, I hear the instrumentation. It's like it's got to happen that way. Like I won't write anymore with someone unless I'm producing. Mm. Yeah. Um, unless they're a large, you know, like yeah. right. Pink wanted to write with me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. Right. You might make an exception. Yeah. Well, the, she in, was the one that stood me up five times. Oh, really? oh there you go. I would have loved to write. I was, I'm perfect for her. She should write with me. Yeah, you hear the, that, Pink? You should be writing. I was about with to say, me. she's listening. Right. By the way, I will say I love all the music she's written and done. It's not like she needs to write with me. Right, I just yeah. felt, you know, sympathetically. Yeah, yeah. I think she's amazing. So. Yeah. Well, in 2013, you received an honor that would just be a dream for any writer when you were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Tell us a little bit about what that means to you, both professionally and personally. To me, it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be too cool for school and say, well, I don't care if I'm in. I was so honored, and I felt like that was the validation that I really was craving. Hmm. I also felt like, um, you know, there were 400 inductees, and only 15 of them were women. Hmm. Hmm. And I understand why that was. There just weren't a lot of us, you know. Right. And Desmond Child said something to me once that really, really was very, very um, sweet and flattering. He said, you know, you were the first. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you were the first female writer that could write with bands hmm. and write rock. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah, we've touched on it, but, uh, you know, really many of your songs are these anthemic, strong female vocals do you think of yourself as a voice for women in rock and pop music? Okay, that's a loaded question, and I'll tell you why. I think it should get to the point where it's not about gender. Yes, I think there should be more women, but I think there should be more women because they're great writers. Mm. I went to see Prince once, and I just thought the drummer was amazing, and I couldn't see who it was. I just said, God, who's that drummer? He's like badass you know? right. and it was Sheila E <laughs> wow. and I said that is so cool that's what it should be about it should be it shouldn't really be about gender it should just be about great writers um, and I think that more and more because well there's more people in the world but also because hopefully because of people like me there are younger girls that you know are getting the confidence to want to be a writer yeah. You know? Yeah. So in that way, I think I'm. That's more of a feminist stage, uh, statement than to say more female writers. You know. Yeah. Right. Well, I I have a uh, two month old daughter, and if she one day says I want to be a songwriter, Daddy, I'll say, Well, Tell there's somebody named me. Holly Knight out there. They'll show <laughs> that you can do it, and you can make it all the way to the Hall of Fame. So, um, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank and, you. It's been yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Thanks again to Holly Knight for spending some time with us today. Please check out our website at songcraftshow.com to hear other episodes and see what's coming up ahead. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to send us a message to the contact page, and we'll see you next time.